Well, I invite you to turn your, in your Bibles back to Psalm 119. We, of course, continue in our study um, of this great psalm, this acrostic poem. Psalm 119, you'll see on the slide there our verses and our stanza we're going to cover this evening. Um, going to be verses 89 through 96, the Lamed stanza. Lamed stanza. Yes, we've passed the halfway mark, as Danny said last time, uh, in our study of this, this poem, and having, if you remember last time, hit rock bottom in the previous stanza, so to speak, as Danny described for us so appropriately, as, as the lowest valley of this psalm, you will notice beginning tonight that the psalm's perspective now begins to shift upward in the midst of his suffering. And uh, I say in the midst because it's clear here in our passage, even just as a, at a glance, if you look at 90, verse 94 and 95, that his circumstances haven't really changed all that much. You notice that? And yet, his perspective is different. There's hope now. He's still in need of rescue from those who are plotting to destroy him, but his, his, his tone is different. His gaze is now fixed not on his circumstances, but as we'll see tonight, rather on certainties. And that's something that we need to learn from him this evening. Uh, it's a critical shift, isn't it, in perspective? Uh, you've probably heard that term before. P- perspective is everything. Uh, it's easy when we focus on our ever-shifting, ever-changing circumstances in this life to grow discouraged and fearful, isn't it? When all around, as we just sang, our soul gives way. When life seems so fragile and fickle and frail when change and tragedy are are kind of at every corner, when we feel as though we're tossed about by every wind and wave of providence. You know, do you ever feel like life is like a roller coaster? Uh, And I would add, anybody ever uh, ridden uh, Space Mountain? Show of hands. It, you know, it's a roller coaster completely in the dark, right? And, and, and in one sense, to my kids, that's the most terrifying thing, right? Cause, but it, has anybody ever ridden it with the lights on? It's, it's not as scary. You know, and you can see what is coming ahead. Life is like that a bit, isn't it? When the unexpected changes hit us and uncertainty is our lot, it can be challenging, well, tonight, then, we need to learn how to shift our perspective like the psalmist from focusing, rather, on our changing, ever-changing and uncertain circumstances to fixing our hearts on certainties. And particularly, I love, I love how Spurgeon now describes the shift in perspective in the psalm now. He says, after tossing about on a sea of trouble, the psalmist here leaps to shore and stands upon a rock. I love that picture. And the rock 
as we'll discover here tonight, is none other than the, the enduring word of God. You see, what anchors the psalmist's soul, what steadies his spiritual ship, even in the midst of stormy and shifting seas, is none other than what Peter describes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, as the more sure prophetic word. So, tonight we're going to learn that God's word is more sure than our experience, more sure than our trials and circumstances. Christian, God's word is more sure than your 401k, (laughs) even more sure than the laws of nature. And so God's word must be our stability in times of uncertainty. That's the main point. If you take anything away from the psalm tonight, from the teaching, that's what you should take away. So follow along with me as I read the text for us and uh, let's, let's see how the psalmist shifts his perspective from the world onto the word. Okay, beginning of verse 89. He writes, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. Now, we get to do something tonight uh, that isn't typical because it's not a Sunday morning. Um, but did I, did I just change that? No, you changed it. Okay, let me see if it works. Was that me? Um, in case you're wondering, if you, in case you're ever wondering how preachers sometimes come out with their outlines, hopefully you can read that. Uh, I thought it'd be neat to show you even how uh, I've divided up and why I come up with those, uh, the, the points that we do. You know, sometimes you get to a sermon and you say, man, how, how do they get that neat parallel outline in those sections? Why do they divide it up that way? I thought it'd be fun to show you real quick. If it's not fun to you, then you're not a nerd like me, so... Uh, maybe only a few of us here uh, will appreciate this, but nevertheless, a few minutes here. Let's, uh, <clears throat> as you remember, Psalm 119, uh, in Psalm, every first word in each stanza begins with a letter, uh, with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet, right? That's the acrostic nature of the poem. And so that every first word in this stanza uh, of every verse begins with the Hebrew letter Lamed, which is equivalent to our English letter L. And, and in Hebrew, it just so happens that when you slap the letter L, I'm super simplifying this, right? In front of a word, it adds the preposition to or unto to that word. For example, notice, notice the words uh, that I highlighted in yellow. Now, I've made some uh, adjustments maybe uh, t- to your English translation 
just to try to reflect the, the, the original text here. But no, notice the words I highlighted in yellow that begin all three of these sections, which, by the way, there's going to be three divisions in our text tonight. Uh, the first two words in yellow in the first two sections, beginning verses 89 and then 93, are actually, you don't see it in your text, perhaps, they're actually the same word. Those two verses begin with not only the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet, but the same exact word. Uh, and so I've changed, I've added in, in front of verse 49, literally, for, forever, I will not forget. And so you can see how maybe your translation says, I will never forget. It's the same as forever, I will not forget, right? Forever, that word, forever is the word you get when you slap the letter L in front of the word for eternity, which is what I put there in parentheses. So it literally is to eternity. Unto eternity, God's word is settled And then secondly, unto eternity, the psalmist resolves not to forget. So similarly, look at at that that last yellow highlighted word in the beginning of verse 96. That L prefix is found in front of the word all, making the first word there to or unto all things, right? In other words, think about this then. All three sections here begin with a word that describes something that is infinite, something that stretches the expanse of both time and space unto eternity and unto all things. But now notice the words highlighted in green. Again, you'll notice the two words in the the first two sections, verses 92 and 95, that that cap off those two divisions. They're also actually the same, even though your translation might have something different in verse 95. What does your translation say, probably in verse 95? To destroy, right? But the word is literally, it's the same word as that word in verse 92, to perish. It literally, it just means to cause to perish. So if I cause you to perish, what am I doing to you? I'm destroying you. And so that's why you, but it's the same exact verb. And then so those two same words end those sections. And then notice what ends verse 96 It's just a word that means the end of something, or as your translation might say, the limit. So think about this. Here's the reasoning behind the division, right? Each one of these three sections, listen, not only begins with a word about the infinite, but each section also ends with a word about that which is finite. And so one commentator observes the Lamed strophe here stands a contrasts what stands with what perishes. Isn't that cool? I think that's cool. Um, but again, I'm a nerd. So, so with, with that justification for the division of the text, here's how I outlined those sections to put more meat on the bones for you. And if you just kind of tuned out, tune back in right now. Okay, so here's, here's how we're going to walk through the text more specifically. We're going to observe the psalmist's shift in perspective, remember, in three different stages. 
corresponding with those three sections, three stages of the psalmist's shift in perspective from from temporal uncertainties to eternal verities, from the finite to the infinite. He's going to now fix his gaze, take it off of the world and his trials and put it on God and his word. And he's going to do that in three stages. It doesn't happen all at once, right? Notice he's going to preach to himself in one sense, the enduring character of God's word. He's going to remind himself of that in that first section. He's then going to pursue the, an enduring commitment to that word. And then he's going to end up praising, in that last verse, the enduring completeness of God's word. That's the progression. There is progression here, too, if you notice. That is how change happens in the Christian life, isn't it? You remind yourself of this conviction. You make for yourself a personal commitment to that conviction. And then after you've practiced that, you settle in your mind a final conclusion. You've tasted and seen at that, at that point. That, that's the progression as we walk through these different stages. So let's look at them together. Notice first then how the psalmist preaches the enduring character of God's word to his own soul. Look at verse 89. Uh, Now, in this section, we'll see the psalmist declare and then demonstrate the enduring character of God's word. Notice the simple and profound declaration in verse 89. Forever. O Yahweh, your word is settled in heaven. Now, I already said forever here is, is, is literally the, the term unto eternity and not just in one direction, right, but, but in both directions, unto eternity past and eternity future, the word of God is settled Uh, The verb here describes something that is permanently, unalterably fixed and firm, sure and steadfast. It's, It's closely related to the word that was often used to speak of pillars and monuments, those things which are solid and immovable structures that stood the test of time, right? And so here's what the psalmist is reminding himself of. Here's what he's preaching to himself, that God's word, his eternal counsel is like that. It it, It is immutable. It is everlasting. It is as certain as certainty itself. The word of God, Christian, existed in eternity past and is true into eternity future. We could say there's no shelf life for the word. The warranty will not expire. (laughs) It cannot change. It will not fade or fail. It is settled. And notice that where this word is settled, the, the psalmist includes here this detail that it is settled. What does it say? 
in heaven. Why heaven? Why in heaven? Think about this, because the location of heaven reinforces the idea of safety, security, and stability. As Spurgeon would say, it is where nothing can reach it. It is why Scripture is constantly reminding us that as Christians, positionally, our salvation, after, after, we've been in, after we're in Christ, we are seated with him in the what? Heavenly places, right? Why is that such a comfort, Ephesians 2, 6, to us? Because it tells us we're secure. It's why the Bible always, always reminds us that our, our Colossians 3, verse 3, life is hidden with Christ in God above, and that our inheritance, as Peter would say, 1 Peter 1, 4, is listen to these words, imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Why? Because it is reserved in heaven for you. Isn't that that great? Why heaven? That's why. Because it's where nothing can reach. So Calvin, John Calvin, concludes this, by placing God's truth in the heavens, he allots to it a habitation subject to no changes. Listen, beloved, heaven is, is, is the one place where uh, hackers cannot tamper, <laughs> it, it, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. The truth of the word of God is, here, here's what he's saying then, it's unassailable because of where it is, because of its nature and its location. It's impenetrable because it resides where nothing can mess with it. Isn't that a comforting? Do you believe that tonight? Do you preach this truth to your own soul when you're, when you're, when you're experiencing the, you know, the ever-changing circumstances of your life? Do, do you comfort yourself with this reality that, that God's word and God's truth hasn't budged. Though nations be it an uproar, though kingdoms totter, people plot, kings take their stand, just to borrow the language from other places in Scripture, though the earth should change, the mountains slip into the heart of the sea in the midst of all that is shifting and uncertain, let us remind ourselves, like the psalmist here, that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. So here the psalmist begins this shift in his perspective by preaching to himself first the enduring character of God's word. And notice how he argues in the rest of these uh, verses then three proofs of the reliability of the word of God. Three proofs that God's word does indeed endure and that we can bank on it. Two of these You'll notice the first two are theological and universal, whereas one of them, the, the last one, is practical and personal. Notice first, the first proof of the enduring character of God's word, and that is the character of God himself, proves to us that the, the word is reliable. Notice verse 90, the first half of it. He goes on, your faithfulness... Your faithfulness, God, 
continues throughout all generations. In other words, the word of God endures and remains the same. Why? Because God himself endures and remains the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Brian Borgman says there's no distinction between the character of God and the nature of his word. You ever make that connection? Um, You should. Because he he is, by his very nature, faithful, reliable, trustworthy, and loyal. Look, every time he opens his mouth, we can trust what he says. To trust God is to trust his word. You can't claim to believe God if you don't believe his word. But the two are tied Together, I love what my friend Paul Shirley points out in something that he wrote recently. He said this, Jesus, think about this, Jesus said that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Matthew 12, verse 34. You remember that? Well, apply this to God then. He says, the Bible then is where God speaks, and thus in the Bible, if we're making this connection, we have a living and active expression of the heart of God. The word of God endures forever because the one who speaks it is eternal and ever faithful. Specifically, God's faithfulness here, uh, as one writer defines it, is his dependability to do what he says he will do. And notice the psalm writes that his faithfulness continues, just like his word, from generation to generation. That is, in and through every age. So the question for us tonight, for you, is, look, do you trust that the word of God is true for your generation? Listen, that that is a critical question for us to answer in a postmodern society, isn't it? It is. It doesn't change. God's truth is fixed. But notice next, not only does the psalmist anchor the word of God in the unchanging character of God, secondly, second proof of God's The reliability and the enduring nature of God's word is the creation and continuing of the world. This is so interesting. Look at the second half of verse 90. He says, and into verse 91, you established the earth and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances, for all things are your servants. Listen, this is incredible. The psalmist now summons God's work to the witness stand, right? He summons the work of God in the world as a testimony now to the character of God's word. Have you ever thought about it that way? That you wake up every day and the sun rises and it sets. You see, as one commentator put it, the stable universe is a visible token of Yahweh's faithfulness. In fact, we know from the writer of Hebrews that God not only created all things by his word, Hebrews 11.3, but we're also told that, that he continues, remember, to what? Uphold all things by the power of his word, Hebrews 1.3. And so, Scripture regularly, not just here, compares the faithfulness of God's words to his enduring work of creation. And here, the the psalmist summons that as 
proof number two that he can be trusted, that his word can be relied upon. The psalmist acknowledges both. He links the creating and sustaining work of God. Notice in verse 90b, you established the earth and it stands. He links that to the instrument of God's word. Notice verse 91, they stand this day according to your ordinances. That's how they stand. The ordinances here refers to God's judgments. They are his decrees, his eternal decrees. As, as Plumer puts it, his, they're his settled decisions, right? As a judge declares, they're his decrees, they're his ordinances. And when God, listen, decides something, not like us sometimes, it will come to pass. But this is how the universe remains intact. Christian, the the laws of physics, chemistry, biology, the whole created order, the very fiber and fabric of nature itself stands according to God's decree. Why? Well, notice the psalmist tells us in the second line of verse 91, for all things are your servants. You know, you ever read something and just, it's like you've never read it before. That, that was this verse for me. What, what an incredible statement about God's sweeping sovereignty. I mean, literally, take this and put it in the category of Ephesians 1.11, Romans 8.28. Look, this is, think about it, this is, this is, how God actually works all things after the counsel of his will. This is actually how. We're given insight here into how God actually causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. The psalmist tells us it's because all things are his servants. I love that. But as Abraham Kuyper once famously said, there's not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine. This belongs to me. It also reminds me of a famous quote by the late R.C. Sproul. Maybe, maybe you've heard this one before. If He said, if there's one maverick molecule in the universe, one molecule running loose outside the scope of God's sovereign ordination, then, ladies and gentlemen, there's not the slightest confidence that you can have that any promise that God has ever made about the future will come to pass. You see the connection he's making there? And that is precisely the connection the psalmist is making here, beloved, because the word of God is so faithfully, sovereignly, powerfully governs and sustains the universe, how much more, Christian, then should you trust the word of God in that very word that upholds the universe? Do you see his logic here? Like if the wind and the waves faithfully obey him, then so should we. So so not only should we rely on God's word because it reflects his character and because it upholds creation. Notice lastly here, the, 
the comfort of God's people proves the reliability of God's word. And he shifts now from theological and universal to something a bit more practical and personal. Notice verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. You see here, the psalmist transitions to a more personal proof, and and he preaches to himself. He reminds himself of the comfort that God's enduring word brought to him at one point in the midst of his dire circumstances, as Brian Borgman puts it, delight in the word of God gave ballast to his soul on the stormy sea. Another writer says, the word of God is the sick saint's salve, the dying saint's cordial, a precious medicine to keep God's people from perishing in time of affliction. Look, haven't, have you experienced that before? You know, you have no comfort anywhere else. Food tastes bland, right? Maybe some of you who had covid No delight in anything in the taste buds. And yet, you went to God's word, and it was sweet to you. It comforted you. It buoyed your soul. And the psalmist says here, had not the word of God been his delight, he would have surely come to an end. In other words, what kept him afloat, what kept him going, was the comfort that he received, not from his circumstances, but from Scripture. But God's word endures, and it is able to make you endure for all these reasons. So the psalmist says, fix your eyes on that which is firm and faithful. Preach to yourself the enduring character of God's word. Remind yourself of its reliability, how it is tied to the character of God, how it sustains the universe that you see around you, and how it comforts you in times of distress. Remind yourself of all of those things when you experience stormy seas. That's stage one. That's the first thing you have to do. If you look, you're looking to shift your perspective, you've, you've got to preach to yourself. You've got to learn that. But secondly, notice, second stage here, then then pursue. Once you've done that, don't just hear, but do. Pursue, practice, we could even say, an enduring commitment to God's word. We need to learn from this. Verses 93 through 95. In this section, the psalmist gets much more personal. Maybe you heard it as we read it in the beginning. There is a distinct shift in the writer's, in the author's tone here. where We, we find in these three verses a prayer that is actually sandwiched between two promises. Right? Did you notice that? And notice also the not just the shift in tone to, from proclamation to prayer and promise, but also notice this language of pursuit and commitment. Notice verse 93, I will never forget. Verse 94, I have sought. Verse 95, I will diligently consider the psalmist is pursuing this 
enduring word with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it is as if having preached to himself the reliability of the scriptures, the psalmist now resolves to practice what he just preached. Also remember that the, th- think about this, that the first word here is the same word you remember as we began in verse 89. It is that word forever, I will not forget. And so it is as if, listen, the psalmist gets here and is saying, look, that, that our commitment to the word of God should match in duration the character of that very word. Right? If, if the word is forever, then so should our commitment to it be. That's the transition here. And if you're one who doesn't like commitment, let alone a commitment that you must keep for all eternity, <laughs> the psalmist gives us here three motivations to encourage us in this enduring commitment to God's word. And notice first, We pursue an enduring commitment to the word because God has regenerated us. I love this. Notice verse 93. I will never forget your precepts. Why? Because by them, that is your precepts, you have revived me. Look at the language here of not forgetting is... It's it's more than just an intellectual issue, right? must... Much like, as I'm sure you're familiar, how the Bible uses the idea of remembering. It's not just, you know, an issue of the intellect, but it, there's also this element of obedience implied here. To forget is to disobey, to remember is to obey. Therefore, so the psalmist, when he says that he's never going to forget God's precepts, he's implying he's always going to remember to obey them. That is his resolve. That is his pursuit. That's an expression of his commitment to this enduring word. And notice the reason or the motive for this commitment that he makes. Explicitly in the second line, it is because it's, it's because this very word, God used it to give him life. You see that for by them, that is your precepts, you've made me alive, you've revived me. Look, this, this is Old Testament language of regeneration and salvation. It's through the word alone that God grants spiritual life. James 1.18, the exercise of his will, he brought us forth, here's the instrument, by the word of truth. No other way. And so the psalmist says, here's his logic, Hey, how how could we forget that word which God used to make us alive? Christian, how could you forget and neglect and ignore that instrument, that glorious agent by which God saved you? And so having been made alive by this word, the psalmist now resolves not to forget to obey it, to pay attention to it. He commits himself to it. Look, that's not a new teaching here. The Apostle Peter teaches us a similar thing in his first letter, 1 Peter 1, if you're taking notes, verse 23. 
At the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, here's Peter's logic. Listen, just listen. He says, for you've been born again, remember, not of seed which is perishable, listen, but imperishable. Listen, listen to how he describes the word of God. That is through the living and enduring word of God. I love that. And then he gets to chapter 2 and his conclusion then, and here's his logic. Therefore, since you've been reborn by that living and enduring word of God, he says, long for the pure milk of the word. There's the same logic. It was life-sustaining to you at your conversion. Is it not still so? As Spurgeon says simply, that which quickens the heart is sure to quicken the memory. Beloved, if you've been made alive spiritually, if God has breathed new life into you by the power of the word that you should have reason and motive enough to commit yourself to that word, you've been given new spiritual sensibilities and taste buds so that you can be satisfied by the pure milk of the word. And this is, listen, the only way to maintain an enduring commitment to the word of God is if you have spiritual life. You could say the word of God is an acquired taste to a regenerate soul. You can only fake it so long, right? People's interest in things of God and the word of God. It's kind of like my kids, you know, when they ask me in the morning for a sip of my coffee. I don't understand it. They don't like it. But they try to pretend like they do like it. And until God changes their heart <laughs> to savor the good things, right? <laughs> Look, they can only fake it for so long, right? You can see it on their face. The psalmist says, look, the same is true about the word of God. We commit ourselves to it because he's given us new life through it. Only those who are regenerated by the word commit themselves and can resolve themselves in this way to love it and to learn it all their life and indeed forevermore. But notice the psalmist goes on here to give us a second motive. Not only do we pursue an enduring commitment to the word of God because God through it regenerated us. Notice, second also because we are God's possession. We belong to him now and we are in covenant relationship with him. Look at verse 94. I am yours. Save me for I have sought your precepts. Now, notice, uh, lest we mistake the logic here that the psalmist lays down for us, notice how the psalmist in his distress appeals primarily in the first line not to his righteousness before God, but to his relationship with God. You see that? Rescue is based on relationship. That is true everywhere in Scripture. He says, I am yours, which is the most succinct and simple way of stating belonging to someone. And the fact that he, notice in that second line, adds here, for I have sought your precepts, should be understood then this way as evidence and assurance that the psalmist indeed does belong to God. That's how we should read it. The verb to seek here 
means to study or search out the meaning of something, to investigate or inquire. It, ha- it has the idea of going over something over and over again. It's, this, it's, it's, that, it's, the, it's a curiosity word. And, and, and only, think about this, only those who truly are in a relationship with God and belong to Him and know Him approach the Scriptures in this way. So let me, let me ask you tonight, do you, do you scour the Scriptures with this kind of curiosity that you might know God, your Savior, more the one to whom you belong? Are you you really in relationship with him? You know how you'll know if you search God's word, if you approach it with this attitude. Do you know him? Do you belong to him as one of his children? Because if you do, if you truly do, then your desire will be to know him more And that will drive you to relentlessly search for him in the scriptures. By the way, if you look back to verse 2 and verse 10 of this very psalm, you'll find that to search the scriptures is to search for God. That's what drives our curiosity. We want to know the one to whom we belong. So an enduring commitment to God's word proves that we belong to him, that we are God's possession. But notice, lastly, here in this second section, the final motivation to help us continue in this pursuit and in this commitment to the enduring word. A third motive, because in the word we find God's protection. Because in the word we find God's protection. Notice verse 95. The wicked wait for me to destroy me. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. Now, the verb here to wait is connected to concepts of Uh, Twisting and stretching with the resultant significance of tenseness or eagerness. It pictures, as one uh, commentator says, the the spring-like tension of a big cat ready to pounce upon its prey. It's the straining anticipation of a hunter. And that is what the psalmist says here, his enemies do to him. They are lying in wait ready to pounce. And yet, notice what he's doing instead. You know, how many of you, what would you, what would you feel? What would consume your thoughts if you knew that just around the corner, there were people like that waiting to get you, right? Where would your focus be? But notice where the psalmist's focus is. Instead of focusing back on them, he says, I shall diligently consider your testimonies. Man, that's so instructive, isn't it? 
the, the verb here communicates a fixed and intelligent attention. And what a sharp and deliberate contrast to the wicked. While the wicked pursued him, he pursued the word. And that was his greatest protection. You see, he knew that he couldn't save himself. He couldn't put measures around his life to guard himself from every plot of wicked men. He knew his greatest protection was simply to focus on the Word of God. And so Christopher Ash says, writes this insightfully, when under pressure, my instinct is to be preoccupied by the causes of the pressure, to become obsessed even with them, paranoid more and more anxious. You you know this experience, don't you? But the response is to consider the testimonies. But isn't that so true? What what do we tend to focus on when our circumstances begin to close in on us? Those circumstances, right? But the psalmist tells us he resolved in those moments to not worry about his enemies, but to worry only about understanding and obeying the word. Because in the word of God, he found his greatest protection. So we've seen the first two stages of the psalmist shift in perspective. First, preach to yourself about the character of God's word. Remind yourself that it is totally reliable. Then second, put feet to that faith, right? Pursue that enduring commitment to the Word. Practice it. Resolve to fix all your energies on remembering and obeying that enduring Word. But there's one final stage, and it comes in verse 96. And it's, I've just uh, labeled it... Praises, he praises the enduring completeness of God's word. This is where, after all of that, the psalmist finally ends up. His perspective is really complete at this point. His experience, it lines up with the scriptures now. After preaching, after pursuing, and then practicing, he gets to this place. And this is the prayer for you and I, right? That he can finally turn and evaluate things rightly. And in that moment of clarity, what is his perspective? It drives him to praise the enduring completeness of God's word. You see, having allowed his conviction to inform his commitment, the psalmist now looks back. He's able to draw then an experiential conclusion. He has tasted and he has seen, and he does so now by comparing the word of God to every other perfect thing he's ever experienced or observed under heaven. Such interesting language here. Brian Borgman writes, in our times of crisis... We cling to the rock of God's word, right? And when we are stabilized, finally, we can step back and marvel at the beauty and wonder of the rock. We can explore the places where our fingers dug in in desperation. We can examine the contours which provided safety. And this is exactly what the psalmist does in this last verse. Notice the first line. 
I have seen a limit to all perfection. Uh, The language is that of personal observation and an investigation. After all his searching and experimenting in this life, his conclusion, like Solomon in Ecclesiastes, was this. Everything apart from God and his word is limited and has its end. Have you found that to be true, Christian? If you haven't yet in your experience, you will. Christopher Ash writes, whether it be an end in time because of death or a limited space because of rival projects, every human project ends in failure. Even the empire of Alexander the Great, who's supposed to have wept because there were no more worlds to conquer, came to an end. But not just human projects, every perfect sunrise, every perfect wave. I mean, you look on social media, all the perfect pictures, all the perfect, perfectly staged meals, look, given an hour, those things are gone. Even the most glorious of all created things, at some point, in some way, the psalmist says, they, they fail to satisfy forever. There is some lack, no matter how perfect they are, they always fall short. And so Plumer says, all merely earthly things are by their very nature vain, unsatisfactory, and through our depravity, delusory. All human attainments are shallow, all human enjoyments transitory, all human virtue marred. That is his discovery, that is his clear evaluation of things now at the very end of this, these three stages in the final stage. But notice the contrast now in the second line. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. There is one thing, the psalmist says, that does not fail. There is one thing that will not Die, the word of God and the character of God. Now, the language here of exceedingly broad implies something vast and unsearchable, unfathomable and inexhaustible to which there is no end. Listen, that is what the word of God is like. Look, have you ever dove into the study of it and even read the same passage and found this to be true? You see, not only is God's truth infinite in reference to time, but it is also infinite in every other way. It is perfectly boundless, immeasurable, and unlimited in truth, beauty, and glory because it reflects the character of God. Listen to John Calvin. It is termed broad, he says here, to denote that that though a man may mount above the heavens or descend into the lowest depths or traverse the whole space from right to left hand, yet he will not reach farther than the truth of God conducts us. You can't escape it. It's inescapable. It's inexhaustible. Do you believe that about the Word of God? I was thinking of this language, like next time you hear someone speak of the Bible as being, oh, that's just too narrow. Take them to this verse. It's not. 
Only God's word then, in light of that, as an invocation, can satisfy every longing and meet every need for all of creation, for all of eternity. Let me say that again. Listen to how comprehensive this is. Only God's word can satisfy every longing, meet every need for all creation, for all of eternity. And so Matthew Henry concludes here, the divine promise extends itself to all our burdens, wants, and grievances, and has that in which will make a portion and happiness for us when we have seen an end of all perfection. Christian, nothing else can compare with the enduring completeness of God's word. This was the psalmist's conclusion. So, thus completes the stages, right? If we think about how do we get ourselves, how do we pick ourselves up out of the focus on our circumstances in the midst of difficulties and ever-shifting, changing, uncertain world and set our gaze and fix it above where Christ is, right? Seated in the heavenlies where God's truth reigns and resides. How do we do that? We need to preach to ourselves, remind ourselves of this enduring character of God's word, how reliable it is, and encourage our own hearts to trust in it. And then once having done that, we need to practice. We need to pursue this with, with, with fervent commitment, this very word. And then we pray that after all of that, we could have clarity and that we could praise with the psalmist to the enduring completeness of God's word. If you can get to that stage three, then your, your focus will have shifted. Hope will be yours in the midst of those circumstances. Okay, so that, that's the psalm. We got like, whoop. See, everything has an end, including my phone. Uh, it too will perish at some point. Um, so like, what, like we've done in the, in, 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 uh, the past two weeks, um, let's flesh this out a bit. I've got, got some, some questions that we can interact on here, I think, if this is working. So... Some questions I was thinking about, why is it hard to believe sometimes that the Word of God doesn't change? Why why is that difficult? Michael. Yeah, because we, we, yeah, yeah, we, we tend to measure things by our own standard, right? By the standard which we measure ourselves, and... Yeah, we're used to the word of politicians, okay? Those, that doesn't change, right? They don't go back on the word, no. We're used to human words. We're used to human commitments. Yeah, no, that's a great, great observation. Why else? Why, why else for us, for you? When you're in a trial, when it just seems like one thing after another, after another, I mean, that kind of happened to us last week, you know, or... We had our microwave broke, and then something else happened. It was like, why, Lord? Why is it hard in those moments to believe the Word of God? Or even in our ever-changing culture, let's think about that. Yeah, Elizabeth. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's a great observation, right? That's, you know, that's just the nature of uh, communication, right? In one sense, it is, it's difficult for us to think truth and meaning remains fixed when oftentimes the medium through which that truth and meaning is communicated is always in flux, right? This is why I would say hermeneutics is so important, right? How we study, interpret, and understand Scripture is so vital uh, because we can't just make the Word of God say and mean whatever we want it to say and mean, right? I mean, that, that's huge. People do that all the time, right? They, we, we, can, we can go to a passage, pull it out of context, play fast and loose, replace this word with that, and say, oh, that, that's, here's what it means to me, right? Yeah, why else? In, in a, how about in a trial? Think, think particularly in a, when you're facing trials, when you're being afflicted. Everybody's trying to read my mind, Brian. Say that yeah. Yeah. Yes, because I would say even I would add to this, because sometimes we don't see what his purposes are in our trial, and then I would even go one step further to say sometimes our circumstances. Don't you find this to be true sometimes? They, they, on the surface, don't line up with what God says in his word, right? Like you, you, you're evaluating what's going on, what's happening. It's the Psalm 73, Asaph, looking out on the wicked and saying, why are they prospering, right? And I'm suffering. And so sometimes it's difficult to line up our experience with what God's word says and declares, right? That's why it's difficult at times. Okay, good. Uh, Another question is then, when we face trials, what are some common yet unstable things we tend to trust instead of God's word? There's a a ton of them. I mean, you could could literally, Tim. Yeah. Yeah, our own power, our own strength, our own giftedness. And yet, you know, I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, what, have you, what do you have that you didn't receive, right, by God's grace in his hand? Yeah, our own abilities. What else? Alliteration. I love it, Gary. Great job. You should be a preacher. Yeah, every earthly thing, right, that you could depend on, everything you could turn to that would provide some measure and facade of stability. And, you know, and, and I don't want to say temporarily sometimes those things can provide that for a season, right? Um, and that's what's so deceiving at times, isn't it? That's why I say it's, they're, they're seemingly stable, but, they, but in light of eternity, in comparison, verse 96, even that, even those good things, a great marriage, there's going to be an end to that, right? 
like I said at the beginning, kind of jokingly, that our 401k, there's maybe probably some of you looking at that, given the way the stocks are going, you're like, there, yeah, I know there's an end to that. So. <laughs> no, that's, that's a great observation. Anything else? Yeah, so uh, different ideologies, right, that pose as stable truth um, that aren't as certain and sure as the Word of God. That's good. Yeah? Yeah? Yeah, so moving away from the physical things, like the literal physical things and but getting into ideologies and lies, you know, yeah, pe- people bank on all kinds of philosophies. We'll just put it in those categories, right? Approaches to life, you know. Uh, Warren, did you say something? Our own understanding? Yeah. So not just our own abilities, but our own understanding and our own abil- reasoning ability to think our way through something, Right? We rely on that instead of running first to the Word of God. And those things aren't as sure and certain, right? It's shaky ground. Um, Good. A few others here. Oh, back up. So moving out of that, let's think in terms of implications for our theology uh, and and you should do this when you, whenever you read passages of Scripture, you know, once you finish interpreting it in its context, that there are theological implications that arise from that that contribute to our systematic theology. And so I want to ask a few questions about that. How should this passage then inform our doctrine of Scripture? What does it teach us? So how does this inform our doctrine of Scripture? Yeah, the Word of God is eternal. Uh, it's fixed in the heavens. So how does, how does that impact our theology, our bibliology, so to speak? Yeah, so it's sufficiency, right? That's the one word I was thinking of. And once especially towards the end here, right, we're talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. Look, if God's Word alone is perfect, and everything else has an end and a limit and will fail eventually, isn't it true that then God's word alone is all sufficient, right? That's a great implication. So sufficiency of Scripture. What else? No, yeah, they don't contradict, right? God doesn't, God doesn't come along like a few hundred years later and Oh, I made a mistake there. Let me rewrite that in the New Testament, right? <laughs> no, no, we, 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 should, we shouldn't think that, right? E- even in things that we see and we think are contradictions, this conviction should hold us down to say, no, likely there's a harmony here that I don't understand, right? Because God's word and truth doesn't change. In other words, it, he doesn't edit things. He doesn't make mistakes, right? So, Yeah. The harmony and the unity of Scripture. I, I kind of mentioned one at the end there. What else? He didn't make mistakes. What other? 
Inerrancy, who said that? John? Say it more confidently. Inerrancy, yeah. Yeah, this has implications for our doctrine of inerrancy, right? If God's word is fixed and sure and certain, there's no way he could have made a mistake about anything he said, right? Yeah, that's great. Anything else? The doctrine of scripture, Tim? Yeah, we need it, you know. It's related to its sufficiency, but not just, you know, that it's sufficient for all things, but we need it. It's life-sustaining, right? It's the only thing that can uh, save us, as we've seen, revive us, verse 93, uh, preserve us, comfort us. Um, Yeah. Anything else? It's authority, yeah. The scriptures are our authority. Yeah, that's, that's huge, right? Uh, you know, because God is the, because it's, why? Because it's, it's anchored, remember, in God's character and his being. It proceeds from him, it reflects him. And so, yeah, the authority of the scriptures for all of life and godliness, Right? Good. Ah, uh, man. So then how should this, and this, is, this should be just a, a obvious, how should this impact the way we read our Bibles? It's an obvious answer, right? But how do you know which way is up without, you know, sharing? Yeah. So, so First Peter two, we should long for it. It is pure milk of the word, as I said earlier. You know, we we ought to desire it all the more, right? Psalm nineteen, it should be sweeter to us than anything that we could taste and see. So, it should drive us to study it. Very practically speaking. And then, and then, and I was just—I was just thinking it. Doesn't that change? Doesn't this passage just kind of change the way you view the written word? This, you know, that God didn't keep it locked away in heaven. Think about that. You know that that word and that spirit, which searches the depths of God, First Corinthians two, He's now revealed to us His mind that is, in one sense, unfathomable but he's revealed it to us in the written word of God. Doesn't that make you appreciate this all the more? Right? What we have multiple copies of laying around, what we have on our phones, all of that, right? And then lastly, uh, are there any implications for our ministry? I kind of touched on this a little bit, but any implications for how we do ministry? In light of this passage, Jim. Yeah. 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah, you think if it was good enough for your Savior, it's good enough for you, right? If your Savior's reflex was to quote Scripture to in opposition, in the face of even attack, to defend his ministry, then it should be good enough for us, right? It's an apologetic in one sense. It's our only apologetic. Our reflex for ministry ought to be first to the Word of God, right? That's good. Yeah, Mike. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we don't we don't Yeah, it, it's it's related to this issue of sufficiency and relying and trusting in man-made ideologies and philosophies, right? We don't, our ministry isn't focused on that. We proclaim the word of God. We preach Christ. I mean, and we teach and admonish every man in that, right? Because that is what accomplishes God's work in the world and in the hearts of people, right? So we don't, yeah, we don't, we don't rely on, as we said, psychological theory or any, any other self-help stuff, our reflex is to principles in the Word of God, right? Yeah, it's good. All right, well, let me pray, and then I think we've got one more song, Carrie. No, no more song. I let you guys talk too much, or I talk too much, one of the two. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, study. We're grateful for the Word the eternal and firm and fixed in heaven word. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us, for giving us truth that we can feed on, for sustaining us by it. It is our daily food. We pray we'd make it so. Lord, help us to um, put away all human limited um, philosophies and ideologies that we might be tempted to trust in anything that we think would be worthy of our allegiance apart from you and your word. Father, but may we lean solely and wholly on this firm foundation that you've given to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.